Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Bible Breakdown. Um, we missed a major milestone last week, and that milestone is this has been one year of the Bible Breakdown, formerly known as Dive Deeper, as you might know, but I changed it because there was some podcast about art that was also called that. So changed it. Now it's the Bible Breakdown that you know and love. So it has been a year now, as of last week of doing these. I have just enjoyed it so much. I hope you found it helpful, enjoyable. I know I have. I do want to let y'all know, though, how much I've been sacrificing for you. Um, Anchor will allow you to do a a mid-roll ad, which is an ad in the middle of a podcast. And they would pay me for that. I've chosen not to. And I want you all to know that over this year, I've sacrificed $9.00 to not have an ad in every single one of the Bible breakdown. So in case you, any of you are wondering, does Blake sacrifice anything for me? Does he care at all? Well, it can literally be quantified into $9 for how much I care that I have not subjected you to an ad for Anchor. So there you go. Uh, so if any of you should feel led to donate $9 to me um, to make up for this great deficit that I've taken, um, I take cash and uh, checks also, I guess, but cash is better. It's harder to trace. Anyway, so there's some uh, really incredibly unnecessary information about the Bible breakdown. Yet, now we will move to relevant and important information as we jump into the Bible, where the important and relevant information lies. So we are going to be in Genesis 4 today. So we talked about the fall last week in Genesis 3, the fall of man, not the season. Um, and luckily after the fall in Genesis three, no one ever sinned again, right? Unfortunately, we get to chapter four and not only is there still sin, but it's kind of getting ramped up a little bit. So we are going from, uh, eating fruit that we are commanded not to eat to jealousy and anger and ultimately murder in the case of Cain and Abel. That's right. Genesis four, Cain and Abel. So we are going to be jumping into that today. Very excited to see what we have to learn from them. Um, Definitely going to make sure that if we're farming and we give some of the best of our fruit. But um, that's basically what comes. this whole thing comes down to. Somebody gives the best of what they had and somebody doesn't. And when they're confronted with the, uh, the discipline that comes with that, then there's anger. So without further ado, let's jump into verses one and two. It says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. Okay. So there's this sense in Genesis um, that is maybe I don't want to overstate it. It's kind of a, this may have been in the back of the mind of the people who were hearing this originally. Um, This feeling almost of anticipation with every child that's born, uh, with every offspring. uh, Remember, uh, God promises that uh, the offspring of the woman um, will crush the head of the serpent. Uh, There is uh, the word for offspring seed in Hebrew. Um, It can be either singular or plural the way that it is written. So Um, there's kind of this sense, is there going to be somebody born in this story that's going to crush the serpent? Uh, There's this little bit of anticipation. Again, I don't want to overplay that because remember, even the original audience, when they were hearing this, they um, had already endured 
slavery. I have to think that the time when this would have first been read and the community of the people would have been sometime uh, around Sinai uh, during the giving of the law, uh, maybe in the wandering in, uh, in the wilderness before entering the promised land. So they kind of know that things haven't been totally made right and subjected to them. So it's more like if you follow the story as if you don't know how it's going to end, there's this anticipation that this, this promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent. Um, could this be the one? Could this be the one? Um, but again, of course, they kind of knew how the story had gone. We know how the story goes. We know ultimately that's realized in Jesus, not in Cain nor Abel. And uh, But there is this sense of anticipation in the Genesis narratives of a baby's born, what's going to happen? Um, and what, we're, what I think the... Uh, the lesson ends up being is every child that's born, um, there ends up being sin that affects them, that they are not uh, someone who is worthy to crush the head of the serpent. Okay, so that's kind of this theme that comes up through through Genesis. Um, so you may have noticed when I read that, the kind of strange wording there for uh, in the first verse, when Eve says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Um, it's a little bit awkward. If you go into the uh, the Hebrew dictionary, the Hebrew and Aramaic dictionary of the Old Testament, this verse, this word, the definition says uncertain, which is never what you want to see when you are trying to figure out what a word means. But um, this is probably the most likely uh, solution to why it's phrased so strangely is um, it's probably a play on words. Okay, so Cain in Hebrew is Cain. The word for gotten is kaiti, so they have some similar uh, vowels. Uh, we're actually going to talk about Hebrew vowels later on. Oh, just full disclosure, um, I'm much more comfortable with my uh, with Greek than I am with Hebrew, but I did also do four classes of Hebrew, so I, I know some things. But I will just go ahead and let you know from now on. I'm not nearly as comfortable with Hebrew as I am with, am with Greek, but... Um, there are some things in commentaries are helpful too, because there are people who are really comfortable with Hebrew that can help you understand these things. So that I think is probably the best um, explanation for why the the wording is so strange. Um, there are a lot of uh, Hebrew is a language that lends itself to a lot of wordplay, um, just because um, of some things we'll talk. No, we'll talk about now. So Hebrew um, is written and just with consonants and not with vowels. Okay, so that's how the language is written, which for a non-native speaker makes it very difficult. So um, the kind of people who have studied Hebrew um, and who wanted people to be able to know Hebrew, they added the vowels in and they kind of made this uh, system of lines or little dashes and dots to go under the consonants to help uh, non-native Hebrew speakers understand it. If you're a native Hebrew speaker, you can see the vowels and you know what sounds are supposed to go for the vowels. Um, so they did their best um, to kind of come back and uh, add these vowels so that um, people could learn Hebrew that weren't native Hebrew speakers. So all that to say, the consonants are very important in Hebrew. And there are instances in which you could have the same set of vowels and um or a same set of consonants, and there may be actually a couple of options that the the word could be meant for. So there can be some confusion there. Um, but overall, if if it's a lot to do with context and a lot just people who speak Hebrew just understand it and they um, know what the word's supposed to be. So, anyways, all that to say, the 
even though those words don't sound just a ton alike, the vowel or those consonants are similar enough that um, it, it may explain why these, this kind of strange, strange wording here. So there's a little Hebrew aside for you. So, and what we see here for Cain and Abel, Abel kept the livestock and Cain worked the ground. So that's, we've got a farmer and we've got a rancher here. Um, Abel was hanging out with the sheep and Cain was working the ground for fruit and vegetables and who knows what else. So that's the scene. That's what we have. And then we get to verse three. It says, in the course of time, Cain brought of his flock. Nope, sorry. It says, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Okay, so we see that um, there's two offerings here. Cain bringing an offering of the fruit of the ground, as you might suspect, as he is a farmer. And it's uh, described pretty generally, just an offering of the fruit of the ground. Um, but then Abel, he brings the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions and it says the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but not for Cain. And so Cain was very upset. Now, uh, for those of you who are familiar with this story, um, you, you may take for granted the fact that like, oh, well, Cain's offering wasn't good and Abel's was. It's really not, um, it's not super clear. We're not super clearly given that as the reason, though there is, I think, really good reason for us to infer that from the text. So um, Cain's offering is just described an offering of the fruit of the ground. Like that's all it is. Whereas Abel's is the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. Okay. So firstborn of flock, that's the best. Okay. And the fat portion um, in uh, Samuel, some of the priests are um, some of the priests of uh, the temple, Eli's sons. Um, they are condemned because they would um, take away the fatty portion of the sacrifice and keep it for themselves. And so it's this, the, the fatty part was the symbol of I'm giving my best. Um, we I know kind of think of the fat as the part we throw away, but we also know that fat is where a lot of the flavor comes from. And uh, so that the fat portion is some of the best. The firstborn of the flock is the best. Whereas we only see that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. It doesn't say the his first fruits. That's what we would expect here. If it were to be equivalent to Abel's, we'd expect it to say an offering of the first fruits of the ground, something like that. Um, but we don't see that. And then the fact that the Lord um, regards Abel and his offering and not Cain's, there's obviously a, a difference in the quality. Um, some people have wondered, oh, was the livestock more valuable to the Lord than the fruit? Um, we know the sacrificial system had more animals and livestock, but I think that's probably a lesser, a lesser thing. And I don't know that it fits completely with how we read in the rest of scripture. Um, when we see like the Lord's call to be faithful, regardless of what we've had, think about the parable of the talents, things like that. Other places in scripture where we see the character of God and what he requires of his people um, tends not to focus as much on um, maybe the prominence, but rather the faithfulness. And so I think that's what we see here is that God recognizes Cain's, uh, Cain's offering was not as good. And the reality is that um, it probably wasn't the best of what he had. Whereas it appears that uh, Abel was giving the best of what he had, Cain, just kind of some of the fruit of the ground. Um, I also want to just touch briefly, because this is important as you're, anytime you're in the Old Testament, anytime you're thinking about um, Hebrew relation to 
God, Hebrew, the people, not the language. Um, though that's also a part of this. Um, is anytime you see the Lord in the Old Testament, that should communicate something different than when you see the word God. Okay, so uh, what is translated in English Lord is from the name Yahweh in Hebrew. So um, Yahweh is the name that God gives to himself. Okay, so when um, he when Moses um, asks in the burning bush, who are you? He says, I am. That is the name that God gives to himself, how they refer to him. And so Yahweh is really just, really just, I am. That's really what it means. Um, and you've probably heard people say uh, Jehovah. Um, it's it's coming from the same thing. Uh, most likely, again, we don't 100% understand how Hebrew has sounded at all times, but it is more likely that his name is supposed to be pronounced Yahweh than Jehovah, just based on the best that we can guess. Um, but it's all it's all the same thing. And so uh, this is a very special name because it is it's not just the name. Uh, the name for God is Elohim. And so that is just a general term for God. Um, it actually is the plural of God is Elohim. And so that's kind of a more general term, whereas this one is the more specific covenant name of the Lord. So this is referring to the God of Israel um, and it has this this kind of covenant implication to it. Okay, so it's a very uh, it's a very weighty term. In fact, um, you you may know the Hebrew people, um, th- those who are most devout, will not say the name of Yahweh. They will say Adonai, which is uh, translated Lord, and that's how we get Lord in English. Um, so they you'll if you listen to somebody who's reading in proper Hebrew. And if you know like a tiny bit of what you're looking at, you'll see that they get to the term Yahweh and they will say Adonai, even though that's not at all what the vowel or the consonants would have um, in Hebrew. But it's this um, this sacred nature of God's name. Now, we know that um, through Christ, the, the veil is torn between us and the Lord, between us and Yahweh. We don't have to fear saying his name. We can rejoice in saying his name because he has, decided, he has called us his children. Um, We are his people. Um, We can approach the throne of grace with confidence because of what Jesus has done. So we don't need to fear saying this name. We should fear saying it in vain because the Lord has commanded us. um, Do not use my name in vain. Um, So we should give it the respect it deserves, but we shouldn't have fear um, that saying it would somehow bring the judgment of God or um, would in any way sully his holiness um, by saying it. So anytime you see Lord, and it's usually in some kind of different script, in the Bible, like it's either all caps or it's like all caps, but smaller. That's typically how I see it in the ESV is it's like all caps, but the uh, letters are like a little smaller. Um, that's this this one, Yahweh. That's when he's being referred to as this the covenant God of Israel, um, who is also our God. So um, anyway, so we see here um, this difference in offerings to the Lord, to Yahweh. And one is the best and one is just referred to as an offering. So Cain is angry. He sees that his uh, offering is not regarded and he's angry. His face fell kind of like your countenance, like he looked probably bummed out. And so this is what God says to Cain. The Lord said to Cain, verse six, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. 
Okay. So the Lord kind of confronts Cain and says, uh, why are you upset? And why is your face fallen? If you, if you had given me the best of what you had, your offering would have been accepted in the same way. And I think this is another reason for us to think that it's not based on the, uh, the fruit versus the livestock. Um, he's saying, if, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And what that literally means is like, will your face not be risen? So face fallen, face risen. Like, will you not your face be lifted up? Um, if you do what is what if you do well, but he says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So God is explaining to Cain and he's explaining to us that um, there is a desire um, that sin has in us. Um, and it's it's ready to take any opportunity that it can. If there's an opportunity for me to give the best of what I have or to give something that might just make the cut. Um, sin is going to be contrary to the things of God. I'm going to say, just give him some pretty good fruit, but keep those really good looking fruit, really good looking vegetables. Keep those for yourself. Those are going to keep you fed. Doesn't God want you to be fed and be well? Um, but God tells him you must rule over it. And ultimately what it comes down to when you think about how Cain or how we do not give our best to the Lord, it's, it's ultimately a self-preservation tactic. Um, we think that we have to keep the best for ourselves and it's uh, a lack of trust that God's going to take care of us. So perhaps Cain, uh, looking at his crop said, if I don't keep the best ones for me, am am I going to have enough? Am I going to have what my family needs? Um, so it's, it's this self-preservation, uh, that is rooted in, in sin and a lack of trust in God. Um, whereas Abel, even though you know, the firstborn of the flock, the fat portions would have done well to take care of him. He offered those to the Lord. He trusted the Lord. So it really comes down to that. So God confronts Cain um, and again, gives us a pretty good clue that it was the quality of his offering, that it was not the uh, the best of what he had and that this was sinful on Cain's behalf. And that if he had offered his best, his sacrifice would have been accepted in the same way as Abel's. So he says, why are you angry? You, you know what you were supposed to do. So um, then Cain repented and he never did anything wrong again. No, unfortunately, verse eight through 10, Cain uh, just continues his downward spiral. It says Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So Cain, out of anger, out of jealousy, um, he murders Abel, his brother, the one who had offered a better sacrifice than he did. And so we see when God confronts Cain this time, it's actually very reminiscent of when he calls to Adam in the garden. He says, where are you? And again, we talked about it last week. It's not this Uh, He's not really totally seeking information here because God knew where Adam was. He knows what's happened to Abel, but it's really, this is a a relational reach. Um, The Lord is reaching out to Cain. Where is Abel your brother? He's kind of giving him this chance to confess. Okay. Um, Adam, we see he actually does confess. He kind of puts some, but it was because of this, this, and this. I say this is, he says, because this woman you gave me, that's really what he says. Cain, though, says, uh, I don't know. And then he, not only that, but he deflects, like, should I now? Am I my brother's keeper? And this is, of course, that famous 
question that um, we know from the story, am I my brother's keeper? So when uh, Cain is saying this, uh, Cain is expecting this is an understood, no, of course you're not. Uh, that's kind of what he's hoping that God's thinking, um, but that is not at all it, okay? Um, and sometimes I think we have the same attitude when it comes to, am I my brother's keeper? And it's a complex question. It's not like just an easy answer. Um, the idea that are we our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper, uh, is, is rooted very deeply in our identity in God. Because if you think about just normal people in society, obviously there are lots of people who want to do well for one another, but there's, there's no sovereign connection or responsibility to one another. Um, someone might feel that way for their family, um, maybe not even their family. Um, but when we are God's people, as these people in this story were, as the people of Israel were, as we as the church are, um, we do have a responsibility to one another. The answer to that question is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. That's God's answer. Now, what does that mean? Somebody once told me, it's something that's really stuck with me. I'm, and they said, I'm not responsible for anyone, but I am responsible to everyone. Okay, so it's just this expression of, I, I can't control what somebody does. I'm not guilty for something that somebody else does, but I am responsible for my interactions toward a person. I am responsible for how I minister to another person. So we are responsible to one another. We don't, as a, the people of God, just get the opportunity to treat each other however we want. Okay, there is a responsibility that comes with being a part of a covenant community with a covenant God, okay? There is a responsibility that we have to one another. And this probably sticks a little easier in some other cultures that are a little more communal, but in our highly, highly individualistic culture, this is very counter counterintuitive. This is not how we think. We look out for number one. Um, we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Like those are um, ideals of our uh, of our culture as Americans. Other places that are more communal would see this question and would say, "Of course, he's his brother's keeper." Like, what a silly question. For us, there's actually a tension there because there we are often taught that we are not our brother's keeper. And we'll talk a little bit about this at the end, but um, and just kind of what this looks like for us. But if we are a part of a covenant community, if we are part of the church, um, we do have a responsibility to one another. Again, I'm not if um, somebody in our church goes and, you know, steals a candy bar from the store. It's, I'm not responsible for that, but I'm responsible to that person to say, hey, um, you need to return that. You need to pay whatever punishment there is for that. That's not what God would have you do. Okay. It's a subtle difference, but it's, but it's important. Um, we are called to something with one another, though. It's not like we necessarily carry the guilt or, um, or shame or um, consequences that another person does, but we are responsible in how we react to one another, how we treat one another. So, the answer to this question, Cain was hoping it's no, but the answer was yes. Cain, you were your brother's keeper and you murdered him. So God's response, I think, clearly rebukes this idea. Um, and it's also um, when he says, um, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Um, clearly, he is not buying what Cain is selling. And, and then this, what have you done, is also reminiscent of the question posed to Eve. So again, we see that kind of 
um, this this pattern showing up when people sin and then God uh, interacts with them. So um, as a result, um, we see what happens here in 11 through 16. God says to Cain, he says, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So we see that Cain um, is cursed. Um, the ground, which has already um, been told to Adam, it's going to be hard to work. He says, uh, it's going to be even more difficult for you. It's not going to yield its strength to you, Cain. Um, and it's this kind of the symbolic thing. It just has the, um, the ground received the blood of his brother that he killed. So the ground will not then produce, uh, the fruit of his labor. Um, and so he's destined to be a wanderer that he will not be a part of this covenant community any longer. He will be leaving his family. Um, he's worried that whoever finds him will kill him. And, I know that raises questions like, well, who else was out there other than his family? And then later in 17, we're going to see something about Cain's wife. Um, that is another thing that we'll have to save for our uh, Genesis frequently asked questions um, because it would take a, a an entire time to talk about that specifically and what that might mean, how that might play out. Um, I do believe there's good reason to for us to understand that this is not a, a mistake um, and that uh, this does make sense, but... Unfortunately, time will not be on our side for that issue today. Um, but even so, God gives him this mark to protect him from those who might want to harm him. Um, and this is a picture of God's redemption for Cain, uh, his protection for him. Uh, even though he had sinned not only against the Lord, but also against Abel, his brother, um, the Lord offers this protection, this redemption to Cain. And something that we can be grateful for as believers that even in the midst of our sin, God offers us that redemption. So that's most of the story of Cain. Uh, Cain's story with some descendants goes on a little longer. That is the end of the story, unfortunately, for Abel. Um, but really, I think there's a couple of things we can apply from this. And the first one is uh, just a question that you can kind of ponder on. Are we giving God our best? So we know that's why Cain was initially... Uh, rebuked was because he was not giving the best to God. And we talked about how this is kind of an act of self-preservation that uh, I need this. Um, I, you don't need this. I need this. I'm, I'm not, I can't be sure you're going to take care of me if I give you the best of what I have. So what does it look like for us to give God our best? Uh, I don't think any of us are farmers. Um, if we are, um, I'm not sure you're going to put your produce on an altar and light it on fire. Um, as a offering to the Lord. So what does it mean? What does it mean to give God our, our best? Um, I like to think of this in kind of a spectrum. Um, if you were to, let's say, let's take prayer as giving God our best. If you were to pray one minute a day, I think we'd agree, you know what, that's really probably not giving God our best. But if we were to pray for 24 hours a day, every day, um, we wouldn't make it very long. And so that's kind of like, okay, I think we'd agree Praying 24 hours a day every day um, is probably a little too much, right? So that means that somewhere in between that lies 
what God is calling us to in prayer specifically. But here's the thing. We don't all fall in the same place in that spectrum on any of these possible things, whether that be serving, praying, giving, teaching, um, hospitality, any of the spiritual gifts you can think of. Um, we all fall in a different place in that spectrum. So ultimately, I think the only thing we can rely on, since there's not a magic number for any of us uh, for amount of time spent doing X, Y, Z in God's service, we just have to have the attitude of whatever we do, we're doing it for God's glory and for God's good. And that doesn't have to always look like doing something spiritual or at least not explicitly spiritual. Um, you could say, you know what, I'm going to go home and I'm going to watch some TV because it's been a tough day. And you know what, I need some rest and I think I'll find this restful. And God has commanded me to rest. And I know when I rest, I'm going to be able to do better work tomorrow. I'm going to be better for my family um, when I'm well rested. Okay. So it doesn't even have to be something explicitly spiritual to be something that we're doing it for God's glory, but we should have in mind whatever we're doing that um, it's serving the Lord in some way, even if it's not explicitly those ways we can think of like spiritual disciplines or service, or things like that, that um, ultimately we have in mind a heart to be our best for God, even if it is in watching a little TV, it's okay. You're allowed to. And then uh, the second thing as we end up, as we finish up here, um, are we acting as our fellow brother and sister's keeper? Are we more focused on keeping ourselves quote unquote clean? Like, Ooh, that person's, that person's a little messy. I don't know that I want to jump in there. Maybe I'll just pretend I don't know. We can, we can definitely have the, uh, temptation to try to keep ourselves out of the muck and the mess. But as a covenant community, that's not what we're called to. We're called to enter into the muck and the mess and enter into it with the gospel to other people, to preach the gospel to others in the midst of that muck and mess. Because when Jesus found us, we were in the muck and the mess. And he came and got us and he is our model for how we interact with one another. So that's all for today. Hope that's helpful and pray that you'll be able to give God your best this week as well as to be responsible to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Music.